Congratulations for selecting this mediocre gaming podcast. You may redeem this certificate for a beefy mucho macho nacho at any one of many Snagadeer sundries near you. Remember, whatever you need, you can snag it at Snagadeer's. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 13. Today we talk with novelist and voice actor Joe Zija about building worlds for narrative storytelling. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Snaggadeer Sundries. Uh, no, I mean King's Hobbies and Games, retailer of premium painting and modeling supplies for the gamer. This includes Gamer's Grass Tufts. Gamer's Grass is a line of static grass tufts and flowers you can use to enhance the basis of your figures and dioramas. As you know, good basing can enhance the appearance of your bases and make an okay model a great model. Check out the various sizes and colors of Gamer's Grass available at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. Up next, my discussion with Joe. And we are back. I'm joined today by novelist, professional voice actor, Joe Zija. Joe, how are you doing today? Hey, man, I'm pretty great. How are you? I'm 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 doing well. I'm I'm pleased to have you on. I'm I'm a big fan of your novel, Mechanical Failure. No thanks. Which I want to talk about. Well, we are talking about world building, and I want to talk specifically about how you've gone through the process of building the world, or I should say the universe that mm-hmm. mechanical failure takes place in. And um, just so we can get the ball rolling, uh, why don't we find out uh, what makes you a veteran war gamer? Well, the veteran part, uh, I was in the Air Force for, I went to the Air Force Academy in 2003, did six years of active duty and a couple of reserve. Um, all throughout there and before that, I just always kind of grew up a nerd. Fall, fell in love with video games uh, when I was really young, so I've been playing lots of RPGs. Final Fantasy is like, my jam Mm -hmm. played that forever um pretty much all of them um big into jrpgs i'm uh, every once in a while a first person shooter will will catch me especially if it's got a good story i was a huge fan of bioshock Mm -hmm. um the and bioshock infinite right now i'm playing overwatch which is really not um not normal for me I, i usually don't play games that don't have a story or like don't have an end uh because you know they go on forever that's why i don't play mmorpgs for the right. most part. And, you know, I'm a science fiction author, so, I mean, how much more nerd cred do you need? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's that's probably a great place to start. Um, where, I guess, how did, well, how, how did you get into novel writing? The writing, the writing part is actually pretty interesting. So, you mentioned I'm a voice actor now, <clears throat> but I always kind of thought that uh, writing was going to be the thing that sort of took me out of government service because I had wanted to write forever. Right in about 2010, I had decided I'm going to make a go at this and I'm really going to start writing some novels. So in 2010, I started writing uh, novel after novel. Mechanical Failure, I think, is my sixth overall novel. Yeah, I think it's my sixth. And um, there's actually this, this urban legend in the author industry that you have to write a million words before any of them are worth reading. And I did keep like a, a running tally of all my stuff and, and it happened that Mechanical Failure was like 
write started right around the million word mark. So I've been <laughs> writing for a while. I tried to get some things published, and, and uh, I did end up publishing a, I don't know, maybe a dozen short stories over mm-hmm. that period of time, just trying to like work up my chops, practice on on some sh- short stuff, um, and eventually, I weaseled my way into going to Worldcon in Chicago, which is not familiar. It's probably the preeminent science fiction um, convention that's also sort of professional. <clears throat> so it's not like a fan con. It's it's more of a professional uh, convention that also has fans come to it um, that's mostly revolved around literature rather mm-hmm. than, you know, science fiction movies or comic books or anything right. like that. Um, I managed to get on programming because I was like, hey, I write stuff and I'm a um, I'm in the military. So why don't you have me come by and talk about realistic military in fiction? And for reasons I don't understand, they put me on four different panels at this conference. <laughs> so, so then I actually got permissive TDY from my boss. So <laughs> the Air Force let me go without using any leave. Right. And I went and I, I through you know a, a long chain of events ended up meeting the person who would later become um, my first literary agent. I had I sent him a manuscript and it was it was okay. It was it was derivative. I, I can even admit that of um, a couple of other novels I had written and he said, you know, this is good, but it's not something I want to represent. But, it, you know, I could tell you're talented. Send me whatever else you write. So what happened that um, after that, I wrote another book uh, and it was awful. Like it was like this 250,000 word tome um, epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And when I got done with it, like I had had such a tough time writing it and getting it all down and it just seemed like a big pain in the butt so I was like screw this I'm writing something goofy so I wrote this book called Death Bear and the Snuggle of Doom (laughs) which is exactly what it sounds like Uh, and uh, so I sent it to um, this agent his name is is Joshua in New York City and before he can even get to it his assistant at the time saw it and was like nope this one's mine and he's just like he's a younger guy who really likes humor and uh ended up kind of like grabbing it out from under his boss's nose and and he was the one that ended up representing me um this is a roundabout way to get to mechanical failure i promise we're getting there uh but it's a weird weird uh, progression so we couldn't sell death bear and the snuggle of doom i think it's just because it was a little too zany yeah uh but there was one editor who had just started an imprint at Simon & Schuster who really liked it uh, but couldn't get the rest of his team to buy off on it. Uh, So ultimately he turned it down but then came back to me like three months later and was like hey we're looking to fill uh, sort of like a void in our lineup. We're looking for someone that writes military science fiction but that's funny. Can you do that? And so I was like "Uh, okay. And so I wrote um, a proposal and a couple of sample chapters, and he ended up buying it. Mm-hmm. And then after the, the first book, he ended up he liked it so much he bought the next two. So that's how I that's how mechanical failure came to be. Okay, and I, I can definitely tell those of you out in podcast land that um, I don't read much, but I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts and whatnot. And uh, mechanical failure is. I can only the best way I can describe it is if you take someone like oh David Weber and mix him with Douglas Adams and you get mechanical failure 
And I, I am confident that anybody that's been in the military will immediately recognize a number of the a number of the scenarios that are presented in the in the novel. And one of the things about the book in particular that I like is that it's definitely it's definitely true to its own setting, if that makes sense. Like mm. once once you get into the setting or once you start building your world, Joe, it's very consistent in that, um, well, some of the consistency kind of hits you over the head with, uh, well, one of my favorite things about it is the periodic references to a, to a store or shop or whatever you want to call it called Snagadeers. And, um, you, you just have yeah. to read or, or listen to the audiobook, which Joe does a great job of reading his own audiobook. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but anyway, I've, I, I guess I should stop plugging your book for you, but unless I start paying you to do it, <laughs> I'm open to that option. By the way, um, no, but um, it, it's it, it's internally consistent. Is is I guess what I'm trying to say, even for a comedy, and that's not something that many. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that a, a lot of military fiction or military science fiction kind of trips itself up. I know that many, many military science fiction writers are, you know, have a military background themselves. Mm -hmm. And, but even then, I think editors sometimes get in the way and kind of break that. Um, one writer who I really enjoy, and granted he doesn't write military fiction, is Stephen King, but he almost always gets military stuff com just completely and utterly wrong. Yeah, that happens. And, um, but, Everything. Well, I mean, your your book is set in a military setting. I mean, it's set on a on a warship, but it's just it is just hits the right notes so often. And I'm glad. You know, you can definitely tell that you've you've been there and and, <laughs> and done that. Um, but I, I guess what we really need to do is talk about how you went about creating the universe that. Uh, Rogers and the other characters inhabit, and uh, Rogers is the main character. He starts out as a well, a recently uh, discharged service member who, you know, basically gets sucked back in. And um, so, what what was your process like for world building? Mechanical Failure was kind of unique because before that, this is actually Mechanical Failure was the first science fiction novel I ever wrote. Um, everything before that had been fantasy, whether, mm -hmm. you know, the zany fantasy of Death Brand the Snuggle of Doom, but most of it had been epic fantasy, right? So epic fantasy is like, if you can't world build, you, you really can't write it. It become, it falls apart so quickly because it's so huge and the worlds are so large and detailed down to, you know, like names of streets and cities and stuff like that. It's like some of it's insane. I, I know authors that have, you know, they call them story Bibles. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, because they forget. They forget what color the almond merchant in, you know, Balagastan, whatever, is, you know, what what's his, what color is his hair? And they go back and they log that kind of stuff. So I had had some experience in my, you know, drafting of epic fantasy coming up with something that was very consistent and mm -hmm. having reference points where I went back and, um, you know, I, I knew characters and and their dad and their mom and their grandparents, where they came from, all that kind of excessive things that come with epic fantasy. Mm -hmm. When I got started with mechanical failure, I didn't do that at all. 
Like <laughs> I did nothing similar to that when I was making up mechanical failure. I started with the idea of um, the plot and what I wanted to paint that was funny. Uh, like what kind of situation would make something funny, which is totally the opposite. Usually I'm like, okay, well the environment creates the characters and then the characters create the plot. In this case, I kind of like ham-fisted came up with a situation that would be really unique by combining a bunch of different pitches that I had sent my agent when we knew that we were gonna um, kind of, you know, bag the deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and we ultimately came up with this. It was almost like a, um, you know, what would happen in the future when war isn't really, doesn't really like make sense anymore. Yeah. Like when it's, you know, if nobody's fighting it and you, you finally achieve peace, what happens if, if that peace lasts longer than a war fighting generation? If right. People like forget how to fight wars. And that plays a little bit more of a, um, a role in the second and third books. Okay. But, um, and really like I combined that idea with my own experience in the military, which was when I came in in 2003, um, the the military for the most part had been sort of like hyper-professionalized because it was post 9-11. All the guys that had come in prior to that had all talked about like this crazy universe that they lived in in the military where you know, like everyone would stop working at noon and like drink beer and grill out. I mean, this is the Air Force, so you got to give us a break anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like the, the, the military as a force was, um, you know, in the post-Vietnam era, it, it was professionalized, but it was kind of like, a, I don't want to say old boys network, because that's not what I'm, I'm looking for, but something akin to a, a, a frat house. Right. You know, there wasn't a war to fight other than, you know, the Gulf War. Every once in a while, we'd lob cruise missiles at somebody and we'd all get excited. But it wasn't, there was no war going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually kind of, a, there was a similar sort of feeling at uh, the Air Force Academy when I was there. You know, people used to do these like insane things. Uh, actually, I, I made a reference to one of them in the book. I think I, I called it a carrier landing in the book. Um where you know, like people would 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 fly down soaped-up hallways bare-chested. <laughs> That's kind of like a thing they used to do at the Air Force Academy yeah. before everything got hyper-professionalized. So I was like, well, what it would be like? What would it be like if I had someone exit um, the super laid-back frat boy network? Yeah, and then have to jump back into a hyper-professionalized wartime military. Right. I wanted to just highlight that sort of dichotomy like that yeah. that 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 contrast um so that's really where it came from and all the world building that went on top of it sort of helped me build that scenario i was like okay well what can i do what would what would make a force hyper professionalize if it wasn't war because i didn't want to like jump right into war right which is how i i came up with like okay so what about automation Mm -hmm. Automation all of a sudden takes over, and all the personality is sucked out of everything. And you can't, you can't scam the the supply guy into giving you a case of beer because now it's a friggin' robot. You know, right. that's, um, and it all kind of developed from there. And the um, the finer details, uh, you know, like what the ships were, what they were doing, um, that kind of came in as an as an after effect, almost like the 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 sprinkles on on top of the plot. Okay. So as far as like straight up world building that didn't come until later and um, after I had finished the first book I think
think. I'm not sure when I wrote this, but I was like, man, I got to kind of like lock down who all these other planets are. Because I would kind of make them up on the spot mm -hmm. and not realize like where they fit in to the overall scheme of the galaxy. And so then I think it was even after, yeah, after book one was written and I was in the middle of writing book two, um, I went and I kind of came up with like a, a history of the galaxy that they were in, the Fortuna Stultus galaxy. Right. And why they were there <laughs> and, and what was going on, and, and which also is Latin for dumb luck. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I took three years of Latin in college. Yeah. <laughs> and the first so time the Fortuna I heard Stultus you. galaxy is yeah. dumb luck. <laughs> because uh, I don't even know if it's in the, the first book, but they really sort of stumbled on it after they accidentally collapsed the Milky Way. Yeah. Um, and as they were running away, they found like a, a wormhole, un, unspace, and popped out in this like far-reaching galaxy where mankind resettled. Right. Um, so yeah, I kind of did that all in post for the first book. And, and luckily I had written the second book fast. Mm -hmm. um, so that by the time I had already completed the second book, we hadn't even gotten to like editor's review of the first book yet. Mm -hmm. Um. So I had time to go back and sprinkle in that world building okay. post, um, which is I don't recommend. <laughs> right. I don't recommend that to authors, like just kind of coming up with stuff and then trying to make it consistent later. But uh, it worked for this. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that I think that that process is is important, and I and I appreciate that you took took a look at the plot first, and then decided, you know, it's like you have an objective, but you are going to map out how you get there later as opposed to drawing every single every single little street and every single little house and then seeing what comes out of this map that you've built of a city. Yeah, I mean both ways work. I know right. people that have written fantastic books doing that because as you're coming up with, you know, like oh, this is Tom the baker. He has four kids and one and then you all of a sudden you're like, well, one of the one of those kids loses an arm in a baking accident and right. all of a sudden they, you know then then you start coming up with it that way right you know, unique things about your environment particularly in epic fantasy if like okay if i'm going to come up with the magic system first um this magic system is so unique and interesting what kind of people would it create who would use the magic mm -hmm. and what would their ambitions be and how could i make that into a really cool story right and i think that as <clears throat> as gamers uh you know if we if we were to build a narrative campaign whether it's an RPG or a or a miniatures game or or whatnot, you know, it's still it's still a type of storytelling, and this approach would uh, well either approach really is you know it's definitely something to consider uh, when when making that or building that campaign as opposed to just as opposed to just well we'll just play a bunch of games and see what happens because. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I know that I would like to try to do is exactly, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, build a, a longer, you know, longer reaching narrative out of the games we play. And I know a lot of, uh, well, actually on a, a recent uh, episode of uh, Meeples and Miniatures podcast, uh, one of the hosts, uh, Mike Hobbs, talks about exactly that with uh, a War of 1812 game that uh well a game that he wrote an 1812 uh supplement for so i mean there's definitely potential there 
not only historical but also science fiction and fantasy. I, I do want to touch on some of the details in you okay. mentioned that you locked him down at you know in post, but like the some of the aspects of the ship itself that the that the the book is set on. So our hero Rogers gets his ship from some extra legal means. It sounds like yeah. And um, long story short, he erases it from the inventory of yeah. Of- Rogers gets press ganged back in, but there are a number of details about the about the ship that the story set on that um and I, and I don't want to give any spoilers away but mm-hmm. uh you know one of the first things that he encounters is the travel tube system mm-hmm. and uh I get the feeling that it's kind of part elevator part subway in that the the vision I have is that you know it's well it's a tube so they're actually round cylinders that they're moving around in but did you have any thoughts about where this thing actually, or the system actually goes to, or the different, no, I just, where the different decks are, or did you just say, well, these are up and those are down, and you go from there? I, you know, I kind of had the, the decks sort of um, planned out. I'm sure there's a document somewhere that has the decks on it. Um, I, You're right. It's, it's actually not so much part elevator, part subway but it's an elevator and a subway. So there's, there's two transportation systems. There's the upline that goes between decks okay. and the inline that goes along a deck. And I was just trying to solve the problem of like, okay, so we have this giant, you know, city-sized ships that are, you know, housing you know, like a thousand people at a time. Um, how do I want to make this work where people don't have to just like, I didn't want all I really didn't want was like lots of conversations of people like walking down the hallway for a half a mile or a mile to get yeah. to the other side. I wanted them to be able to just like pop in and, and pop out some other place. And it also gave me an opportunity to make fun of uh, public transportation announcers, which is really, you know, that was the, kind of the goal of having a public transportation system so that I could have public transportation <laughs> announcers that you couldn't understand. Right, right. <laughs> um now there's there's one aspect of the of the ship. It, I don't think did did you actually name the ship or is the or is the ship just the name of the unit? Um the name of the ship is actually the flagship. Uh and it was a clerical <laughs> it was a clerical error. Okay. <laughs> so somebody was typing in like, "Oh, this one right here, this one is the flagship of the unit," and they hit enter. <laughs> and it and it became the flagship. Okay. <laughs> One of the one of the disadvantages of of listening to an audiobook is you miss out on capitalizations, and I guess I would have picked up on that. Yeah, you know what? I didn't even think about that. You you don't hear the itali- uh, the the italics, so you never <laughs> knew that it was italicized like, as the flagship, the NPF flagship. <laughs> there you go. You learned something. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That is great. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you you knew that Roger's ship was the awesome. Yes, right? and that's the yeah. actual name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean the the other characters reference how stupid it is. You know, like the the maintenance yeah, okay. chief. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Come on. Oh, anyway, <clears throat> back to the show. Yeah. The the uh, the name of the unit is the um, 331st Anti-Thelicosin Buffer Group, uh, affectionately known as the Speed Bumps. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of yeah. it's, well, it's certainly reminiscent of our forces in Korea. I mean, they're that's exactly where I pulled it from. Yeah. So um, now there are some other aspects of the of the ship that are unique to the universe of mechanical failure. Um, for example, the the different galleys, and I guess you could, in some cases you can call them wardrooms. Also, have pretty imaginative names and. Where where did that come from? Those I all just made up. I wanted them all to be something something specific. Like I wanted them to all be named because you know, like all of our all of our um, facilities and all these bases are named after like important generals and stuff. Like mm-hmm. like Mitchell Hall or you know at, at the academy. I'm going back to my academy days. Right. So like Vandenberg Hall, Sajon Hall, Fairchild. They're all like famous people. So in this case, I just named them after um, maneuvers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were all like maneuvers that I made up. So okay. there was like, you know, the kamikaze where you were never, ever supposed to eat. Um, the peek and shoot, uh, the uncouth corkscrew. I was thinking about like, uh, uh, you know, like um, different fighter pilot maneuvers that are right. real, you know, like the, the, the split ass or like the right. crazy eight or, yeah. or, or whatever. Um, yeah. And made up my own. Yeah, the, the Immelman room, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the uncor- the uncouth corkscrew, just there's a double entendre there. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think actually Rogers, um, when he's talking to the corporal, I think uh, I want to say that there's a passage where he's talking to to the corporal about meeting her there, and she just about backhands him or something like that. But. Yeah, he's like he's like I want to do the uncouth corkscrew. <laughs> What? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it being a city, basically a city in space. And mm-hmm. I mean, one of the best ways, you know, to really be a city on the go or coming up is to have a zoo. And of course, you incorporate a zoo deck. Yeah. I mean, what self-respecting <laughs> ship doesn't have a zoo deck? Right. Uh, that's how I took care of the idea of like a biosphere. Right. I just I just called it the zoo deck. Um, you, you'll be introduced to other biospheres that aren't called zoo decks in, in book two. Okay. But they're pretty much all. They're pretty much all zoo decks. Okay. Very good. Um, now, speaking about the greater, the greater societies that that we're talking about we've got the meridians which is the society of the main characters they're actually meridians but everybody says meridians meridian meridian okay meridian yeah, yeah. meridians okay well, that's right yeah Merid. that's the meridian yes yeah, the meridian space but or uh meridian what is it uh there's a there's the patrol force which is like a subsidiary force, yeah. of the of the navy yeah yeah and the thelicosans now where did the I guess the image I get of the Thelicosans is sort of like a, a nebulous, almost nondescript other, for lack of a better term. And kind of like, you know, almost, I don't want to say North Korea, but, you know, it's kind of like we don't really know what North Korea is like. I mean, yeah, occasionally we get some photos smuggled out and we see their official you know, their official videos that they put out, but no one really knows what North Korea is like. Is is that kind of what the Thelicosans came from, or is there is there something else there? Um, the Thelicosans are not really referencing North Korea. They, they weren't intended to, like, sort of personify anybody. Mm-hmm. The, the way it goes is, is so when, um, and this isn't in, this is, like, background that's in the world building. When, when the 
uh, when the Milky Way galaxy collapsed, um, they got out of there and they found the Fortuna Stultus galaxy. And mm -hmm. in it, there were four different systems. And uh, at that point in the history of human colonization, humans had colonized five planets. Well, I guess they've colonized four planets. Um, it was uh, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune. Okay. I think that's it. And uh, the folks, each, as, as they went to the new system, or the new galaxy, right? There was four systems for five planets, and there wasn't as much terraform space, so it became like a, a war over living space. Okay. Um, they call it the War of Musical Chairs because there was one less system than there were planets to settle, so someone was going to get out. And then, in the end, it ended up being the, the folks from Jupiter that kind of got like kicked out. They were forced to assimilate into the other systems. Okay. Um, the Thelicosans, the Meridans are from Earth. The Thelicosans are from Mars. That whole system of Thelicosa, which I think consists of three, uh, three planets inside, they're all from Mars. And the people from Mars were the first colonists outside of Earth. So everybody that colonized Mars are these like rough, tough, rugged people that had to live on Mars because it sucks up there. Right. But they're also major math nerds. Yeah. Um, so, like, they worship math and science, but they're also very bellicose. They have the nickname bellicose, thelicosum. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's their story. Okay. When when there was the whole war of musical chairs, everyone kind of stopped talking to each other for the most part. It was like kind of, you know, live and let live. We're done with this. Let's sign the 200 years and counting peace and uh, be done with it. Okay. So that's why the, the cultures... I mean, they interact on a political level, but your your average person usually doesn't meet anybody from another system. Right. Now, as far as the society that the Meridans inhabit, uh, with, you know, there, there's all these references to Snagadiers. I, I get the feeling that it's kind of a consumerist, consumerist, uh, corporate, mercantilist society, not unlike our own. Is that is that kind of what you're going for there? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, Snaggerdeers actually, unlike most other corporations, is pervasive. It actually exists in all of the systems um, and is a very large... Think of it as like the largest groupings of 7-Elevens ever. Okay. Uh, and they make like everything. I mean, their their storefronts are like 7-Elevens, but they, they kind of have their hands in, in a little bit of everything from the manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know. I can't remember what the, what the references were in the first book, but in the second book, you'll see every once in a while, you know, there'd be like a door with a Snaggerdeer symbol on it, or, or you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they make sneeze guards for sandwich bars in the second book, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it yeah, I kind of got the impression that they were, like you said, they were everywhere, but I didn't realize that they were that far far flung that they were in in all the systems. Yeah, they, they're all over the place. Okay, all right. Now, as far as the the military forces of Merida. Mm -hmm. It seems like the like the rank structure seems to be like a mix of air force and navy and marines. Is that is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly it. Okay. Um, I, I didn't want to do anything too creative with the military structure of any of the uh, militaries and like you know the other militaries. Like you'll meet people from from other systems in, in future books and they have 
pretty basic rank structure. I think it, it kind of distracts from the the story if like you've got to make up names for all these people it, you know it's just yeah. uh distraction because it, it's not important to the story really at all okay yeah it, it's it's enough for us to know that rogers starts out enlisted basically gets forced into being an officer and then mm-hmm. continues to climb up the ranks yeah much to his dismay yeah <laughs> dismay chagrin whichever way you want to look yeah. at it okay um what uh do you the only see- rank I think I really messed with was lieutenant, lieutenant. Yeah, lieutenant, lieutenant. Right. Yeah, um, because it was just like uh, I think I was making fun of particularly the Navy's lieutenant, lieutenant junior grade. Right. Because I was like, lieutenant already means like the person in place of. It's from a French word that means like the person who stands, like tenant. Yeah. Uh, person who stands in someone else's place. Or in so lieu like of. Yeah, in lieu of lieutenant colonel. Yeah. You're you're there because the colonel is busy playing golf or whatever right 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 so a lieutenant junior grade is like someone who is standing in a lieutenant's place a <laughs> lieutenant lieutenant right uh the uh yeah it's just yeah i, I get what you're saying because i'm not going to mention any other any other books by name or authors by name but in some military sci-fi they do they do get into that um, uh, what's the word for it? You know the the minutia worship over stuff like that. And yeah, I call it um, I, I call it fantasy hell. I like when I read when I open up the first page of a fantasy book. I had this wind back a little bit. So I had a librarian right mm-hmm. when I was um, in elementary school. Okay, and when we were all like doing reading class, she came in and she's like, "You should know if you should be able to read a book if you open the book." And there are five words on the first page that you don't understand. The book is too hard for you. I feel the same way about fantasy. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I open up the book and the pa- first page includes n- names of cities and places and ranks and swords of undoing, and there's more than like five of them on the first page, I'm like, this. I'm not ready for this book. I don't know who any <laughs> of these people. I don't know who any of these people are, or like what direction they're pointing me in. So when you like, particularly when you replace, um things like common knowledge like right. if you talk call like what's obviously a tiger a lutrotsaska <laughs> you know like that's it just becomes it becomes excessive and confusing right so that's what i was trying okay no i i i, I like that approach it, it it makes well it makes a heck of a lot of sense because you know some of the not so much in, in military sci-fi but more you know quote-unquote literary sci-fi they'll do that and especially in in fantasy you know it, it's you know it's bad enough if you're spending you know five pages discussing the how the the grass was waving in the wind on the side of the hill that they were walking by on their on their quest but then to inject so many foreign words in these bizarre creatures you know there's Heck, you can look on our own planet and find plenty of bizarre creatures and not have to make up crazy names for them. You know, platypus. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything more bizarre than a platypus? It's pretty bizarre. <laughs> and the name platypus isn't exactly, like, non-fantasy-esque, you know? Right. It's a fantasy-ish name. Just, yeah. Just leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I can definitely appreciate uh, that approach. And, uh, 
I just wish more authors thought like that. But well, you know, it can be done well. I've, I've, there are plenty of books that have like, I mean, they need a freaking glossary, but they, they're great. The writing is great, and the author has some sense of skill on how to introduce terms at a rate uh, at which it's digestible. Sure, sure. Yeah, I. It's definitely if you're gonna play that game, I, I think it definitely needs to be balanced. Yeah. And. Uh, and that's just like anything else. I mean, it's like, okay, I get it. Back in the, back in the Victorian era, you know, people that read literature had a passing knowledge of Latin and French and maybe even Italian. So then, you know, when you're reading a book that goes back and forth between those languages, you know, it, for the Victorian reader, it wasn't such a big deal. But you pick up, you know, Umberto Eco you know, in the name of the rose, and he's going back and forth between those languages and German, at, you know, all at the same time, it, yeah. it gets a little difficult. And I, I remember I, when I was in high school reading um, Last of the Mohicans, mm -hmm. there's like entire half chapters in French. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, first of all, okay, like way back when, sure, if you had a passing knowledge of French, great. But I'm a ninth grader in the United <laughs> States in, you know, in the, the, the 20th century. Give me a break. Right, right, right. The, I don't want to say... Maybe it's just a bit pretentious if you do it these days. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it can feel that way. It can certainly feel that way if you don't if you don't handle it properly. You're like, yeah. And it's very obvious, I think, when that's the way it's done. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm checking the box here. I've got to make up a six-syllable word with apostrophes in it for, you know, this city. Right, or whatever. right. No. Yeah, the uh well I guess uh I guess without uh getting too far into spoilers, I guess you've got the when when do we know when's the second one coming out? Do we know yet? Uh, I think it's coming out um October twenty no, October seventeenth? Let me look. I think Amazon has the I don't even know. Amazon knows more than I do about this crap. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What does it say? Mm mm. -mm. October 17th, this year. Okay, and is the audiobook going to drop about the same time? Audiobook should release the same day. Uh, okay. We're already, you know, like it's already been copy edited and, and stuff like that. It just needs to kind of get plugged into Simon & Schuster publishing schedule. Okay. So, um, yeah, I should have like a galley copy that I can narrate from very soon. Okay, great. Which is way ahead of schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, no, that's that's good to hear. Um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um in case I didn't mention earlier in the show, I, I've listened to it twice, and that's not something that I often do with audiobooks. Um, yeah. One one that I have listened to multiple times is Salem's Lot by Stephen King. It's a great it, book. It, it's kind of my Halloween thing. Whenever Halloween comes around, I, I listen to, to Salem's Lot again. I think I'm on my fourth or fifth listen at this point. Nice. Um but yeah, I mean, Mechanical Failure definitely definitely stands up. So at this rate, yeah. uh, well, Mechanical Failure came out last year. Does this mean we're going to see the third book in 2018? I would hope so. Um, the schedule has kind of changed a little bit. At first, they were looking at something really aggressive where it was, um, was it a six month or was it a year? I think it was well, book one was, and then a year later, book two, and then six months later was going to be book three. Mm -hmm. So I think they're, they're looking to lean forward a little bit, but you never know. The publishing industry is... is uh, an amorphous blob sometimes when it comes right. to what what you expect and uh, all that stuff. So. Okay. What about uh, merchandise? We got merchandise coming out anytime soon? 
you know, we've kind of like, um, we've talked about it a couple of different times. Because, you know, as soon as you write something in the military genre, it's like, well, you can make squadron patches and you can make challenge coins and, and all that stuff. Um, the problem with that as a, a debut novelist is that the the market really isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Once the um, once the series, you know, we get through book three, and I've got a couple of spinoff novels in my hip pocket here that I, I would like to pitch. Um, once we get there, and there's you know a larger fan base, then we could start talking about selling challenge coins because it you know it would make up for the the cost of producing them. Uh, the only the only thing I've produced so far is bookmarks. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really nice looking bookmarks, but they're not exactly merchandise. Yeah. Getting back to the, uh, getting back to the novel, um, just in how, you know, you've constructed some of these scenarios. That one of the ones that really stuck out to me that really, really highlights what could happen. Well, maybe not could happen, but you can, you can see it happening. Is how people get switched around into these different uh, duty positions that they have absolutely no business being in. And uh, was there, you know, surely that that didn't happen, right? You, that's not like personal experience where, yeah, there's plenty of times where there's people doing stuff they shouldn't be doing, but it's not like they got transferred. Um, no, in real the, life, it actually it actually did come. Well, I don't know if it really came from it, but I did have a personal experience with a linguist uh, that through some like bizarre, whatever he was. Um, I think he was like a native Iraqi, or his his parents were Iraqis, mm-hmm. and he had moved to the United States uh, and become a full citizen, joined the military, and then they sent him to language school for Korean. <laughs> and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" While we're prosecuting a war in Iraq, <laughs> yeah, like it didn't make any sense at all. And actually, it, I can't remember if it was backwards, if it was like they sent a Korean speaker to learn Arabic it was I think it was the former I think it was they sent like a fluent perfect Arabic speaker to go learn Korean where it may have even been like a totally useless DLI language like Spanish or something like it yeah. was totally it, whatever it was it didn't make any sense at all that was the only experience I had ever had in the military about someone being transferred to go do something that they were like completely not capable not capable but like a, right. it was totally wrong for them but I never had anybody you know like cooks trying to fly airplanes or anything like that right 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 <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure i knew some people flying airplanes that probably should have been cooks right <laughs> now it's um now it's just situations like that throughout the book that really yeah they're pretty wild and zany and a little far-fetched but there's always just that kernel of um yeah i can kind of see that happening and uh it, it's just yeah it's I think it's gonna. Given time, I think that this series. Well, we'll have to see how the rest of the series goes. You know, no offense, but the rest of the books could really suck. I just don't. They could. <laughs> they could suck. But, I've written. A, I've already written. You know, the next book and the a bit of the the third book, and they, they could suck. But uh, if if the first book in the series is any indication, they won't. But um, yeah, I can I can see these going down as you know on par with Douglas Adams as I mentioned that's um, high praise sir it, it is and it's yeah it's just so funny and I I 
I don't have the advantage of reading it from a civilian's viewpoint, you know, because, you know, I stopped being a civilian, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'd, I'd like to talk to someone who is a civilian that has read or listened to the book. Yeah, you know, that was always kind of a thing I was worried about. I talked to my agent about all the time as I was going through is like, I I was trying to steer. I mean, there's plenty of Easter eggs in there that are just for people that were in the military. Mm -hmm. Like I I make jokes that are, you know, like no one. I think I make a reflective belt joke at at some point. in this. Nobody knows what that crap is about if you're not if you haven't served. Um, But I would always ask him, uh, you know, if something if I was going to make a joke. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't subtle enough. Uh, you know, I, I would always ask him, hey, does this make sense to you as as a civilian? Um, even down to, like, using some of the expressions like, you know, whiskey, tango, foxtrot, and that, right. that kind of thing. Um, I did ask him once because I think there's there's someone... Uh, let me not say that. That might be a spoiler because, actually, I think I changed his name. So, never mind. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, are you talking about the Sergeant Strack? No, but I did ask him about now. You're, now that you're saying that, I did ask him about Sergeant Strack because Strack, like when you say the word Strack to somebody, they're like, "You just misspelled strict." No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what it means. Yeah. Uh, so I think I did say that to him, and it didn't matter because it was just some guy's name, right? And that, right. that's like a that's a bonus if you've been in the military, you'll chuckle, and if, yeah. if not, you'll just gloss over. It doesn't hurt the work. It doesn't make something fall flat. Right. So that that's been an interesting balancing act. Yeah, it, I've always heard that a strack just S T R A C, and and I have to laugh even doubly at Sergeant Strack because there was a. Uh, when I was at Fort Bragg in the 90s, in Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina, there was a, a really seedy, divest of dive bars called the Strack Lounge. Nice. <laughs> and just the, the image of that dump just immediately flashed into my mind and, you know, just intensified, you know, the the type of duties that Sergeant Strack had. And yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I can certainly appreciate... You know those, like you said, Easter eggs. But uh, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I just gotta wonder, you know, what what a civilian's view of of this book would be because you know, speaking as a veteran, I I love it. I I think it's great. Um, I get pretty positive feedback from veterans. Like like uh, you know, I'll go and read my Amazon reviews every once in a while, which I don't really recommend to any author for any reason at any point in their career. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people are like, I was in the military, and this guy gets it right. You know, like, it just made me laugh about my military days, so. Yeah. Well, after this being the 13th episode, the last time I checked, I still only have two iTunes reviews, and one of them said, one of them said I was better than syphilis, so. Nice. Well, that's a plus. <laughs> yeah. That's well, a, you could have been worse than syphilis. I, I got that going for me, which is nice. That's good. Oh. Um, uh, my, my favorite Amazon review, I think, so far was, uh, I think it, uh, probably right up near the top it said this book is like really good (laughs) i think that's what it said it was it was like my my favorite review (laughs) like i I think i I think i asked my editor to to put it in the cover of the next book yeah this is it it's it's like super good that's the whole review that's the title that's the title of the review and the content of the review it's like comma Super good. <laughs> well, I can't argue with that, though. 
it, I guess I mean, it's super good. You can't refute that. So now that's no, it's, it's definitely it's yeah, it's it's up there. Definitely recommend folks take a look at it. Um, buy it on Amazon. Um, Barnes and Noble, do they have it like physically it's on everywhere. the shelf? Yeah, Simon and Schuster has got a global distribution, so, or you know, countrywide distribution. So anywhere books are sold, you can find it. It's at Barnes and Noble, Powell's, and Portland, and all the, all the big bookstores. It's there. Okay, cool. Um, now, just want to touch on the voice acting for a little bit sure. while we're here. Um, I'm familiar with a number, you know, quite a few of your projects you've worked on, but uh, for our listening audience, what are what are some other places we could hear the mellifluous tones of Joe Zija. Oh, well, um, if you listen to Pandora at all, I'm one of their official voices, so I'm the guy that interrupts your playlist um, and says, hey, Pandora listener, go buy something. Or, or, you know, I do a bunch of ads for them. Um, you know, like any like any voiceover artist, voice actor, your, your career kind of has to be pretty diversified if you want to survive. So I do lots of things. I do lots of unsexy work. So if you've ever, like, visited the Trello homepage, I'm the guy that talks to you about Trello. <laughs> uh, you know, but I've also played um, Fox McCloud in the Star Fox animated cartoon, um, Star Fox Zero, The Battle Begins. So that was a cool role. Uh, a lot of nerds familiar with Star Fox will have see me there um when is this podcast going to be released thursday thursday okay then i can't talk about a couple of other things that won't be released by thursday okay but um yeah you'll be hearing me in a bunch of different video games and uh i did um i booked a uh, a foreign film dub as a main character oh, okay, you'll probably cool. hear this year uh i actually might have some u.s theater time so that'd be cool um and i got a couple of uh national commercials running right now so if you see something for home goods or glassdoor or sofi or um, veradesk that's mm-hmm. me okay all righty and how can we uh how can we keep up with joe zedra where where do we go to find out more about what you're up to pretty much any social media slash joe zedra you're going to find me there facebook.com slash joe i think is my professional page twitter is at joe zedra instagram is the same uh, my website, joezija.com, I got a blog where I talk about everything from, you know, my writing journey to the voiceover journey to stuff that's like client facing for my voiceover clients. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how to, how to, what's a good way to direct me? Like, what do voice actors like when they're being directed? Okay. All that kind of stuff. All right. Well, Joe, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I definitely appreciate you recording my cold open for me because you know, oh yeah definitely it's always fun if i've if i've got the opportunity for a professional voice actor to do my cold open you know why would i not you know yeah it's gonna <laughs> suck when you get my invoice though <laughs> well that's okay since i've got a sponsor i've got absolutely no money to do that with oh good great because <laughs> I, already, I already spent the dough on hosting fees oh <laughs> so uh Joe, again, it's been a real pleasure talking to you yeah, tonight. Yeah, it's been great being on. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to the next book. I'll uh, I'll have to keep my uh, Audible subscription going until then, but it's it's going to be worth it. Um, so, once again, thanks a lot, and look forward to talking to you again. And for the listeners out there, like always, if the gaming you're you're having isn't isn't fun, well, you make it fun. That is all. Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.